The Abstract Athlete Podcast, a collision of art, sport, science, and more. Welcome, everybody. As always, I want to say thanks to everyone for listening to the Abstract Athlete Podcast. Really appreciate the support and want to say thanks to the amazing sponsors and especially our growing number of supporters. A reminder to check out our website, theabstractathlete.com, for upcoming events and information. And please follow us on all of our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Totally thrilled today uh, with the music, which was provided by the amazingly super talented Aaron Lee Tajjan. Uh, check him out when you get a chance and make sure to pick up his newest release, Karma for Cheap. Um, truly honored today to talk with New York Times bestselling author Andrew Marinus. Andrew is the author of Strong Inside, Perry Wallace, The Collision of Race and Sports in the South, and his recent release, Games of Deception which is a story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team which competed in the 1936 Summer Games in Nazi Germany. Both books are really, truly incredible reads. Um, I totally recommend both of them. Um, Games of Deception is actually also available as an audiobook. They're available on Amazon, Penguin, Random House, and other platforms. We will be talking about both these books, his amazing family history, and Andrew's current position as writer-in-residence in the athletic department at Vanderbilt University. Welcome, Andrew Marinus. Back here in uh, Vanderbilt University, the McLaughlin, or McGugan. I want to say McLaughlin. That's <laughs> McGugan complex. Um, lucky enough, and you know, really honored to have Andrew Marinus on, uh, author, uh, huge basketball fan, but sports fan as well. Uh, maybe move that a little closer. Let me see. Okay. There we go. All right. Um, and we're going to get into, he just released a new book. Um, Games of Deception. He is the author of multiple books at this point. You're a New York Times bestselling author. And I want to talk, obviously, about your new book. Um, but I also want to talk about your past. Um, you come from a family of authors, which I think is really interesting. You have a huge interest in sports, but also in social everything. Um, but so I guess I really want to start out with that idea of how, like just your history, like how, obviously you probably came to writing because of your family, like your dad is a writer, both of your grandparents are writers, correct? My, uh, well, first of all, Ron, thanks for coming to Nashville. <laughs> it's great to see you again. Yes. It was fun to have you on campus a couple months ago and now to see you and your dog, great dog, Shay <laughs> over there. We'll have to talk to Shay later in the show. <laughs> um, yeah, I came to writing naturally, I guess. My uh, father, David, is an author and has been a journalist at the Washington Post for over 40 years. Yeah. Uh, his father, Elliot, uh, was a newspaper uh, reporter and editor in Madison, Wisconsin. My grandmother, Elliot's wife, uh, Mary, was a, an editor at the University of Wisconsin Press. Um, and so uh, that's always sort of run in the family. The other thing that's always run in the family is a love of, of sports. And so uh, my grandfather... Can't not be in Wisconsin. I mean, <laughs> truly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we come from a family of diehard Packer fans. Um, my grandfather, when I was five years old, we lived in New Jersey. We had moved there from Wisconsin. And my grandfather sent me my first pack actually a set of uh, Topps baseball cards. And <laughs> yes! I would read those cards every day, you know, and sort them by team or sort them by the color of the players' hats, you know, their caps or their helmets, and then read the backs. And my parents say that's how I learned how to read was by reading that set of 1975 baseball cards. Um, also because we had moved away from Wisconsin, that same grandfather was trying to brainwash me 
to like the same teams he did. So he subscribed me to Packer Report newsletter and What's Brewing, the Milwaukee right. Brewers newspaper. And so I didn't really grow up reading lots of uh, serious books, but I was reading these sports newsletters and would get Sports Illustrated every week. And yep. so at least I was reading. And that's what I tell uh, students now. A lot of what I do is visit schools with my books. And I'll say, it doesn't matter what you're reading at this age. The main thing is just to become interested in reading. And yep. so for me, that all came through sports as a young kid. Yep. Now, I, it's, I, I literally... I still have all my baseball cards at my mom's house. And I actually met a friend of mine. Her dad does the writing on the back of the top's baseball cards. Oh, really? Which I think is just fascinating. <laughs> what a so, job. But, yeah, no, I know. Yeah. Like, but I think it's interesting, again, like that idea of I, I'm the same way. That's how I really became interested in reading was Sports Illustrated and anything sports-related to read about in baseball cards. Like you can learn about everything that the – athlete did and you know it's and that idea is like well this per you know this person does this outside it's the more than an athlete's thing and it, it you know i don't even know even geography i mean yep. looking to see where the players were from yep. you know like i wouldn't think i would have heard of santerce puerto rico you know without <laughs> so many right. baseball players right you know you start to learn that everyone comes from uh, san pedro de macaris right. in the dominican republic right right, right. <laughs> no that's no but i like your dad is also a pulitzer prize winning Yes, so um, he wrote a series of articles about uh, Bill Clinton when he was first running for president. And that series uh, won a Pulitzer. And then wow. his first book was called First in His Class, was a biography of Clinton. And then he's written over a dozen books now, about half of them dealing with um, sports. So he's written biographies of Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi oh, wow. and a book about the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome. And so he kind of alternates between uh, so sports that's and like politics. A really, that's a really interesting connection because your most recent book is about the 1936 Olympics. Olympics. So, yeah. I mean, that's like, that's, I mean, it's a weird, it's like a kind of a reversal in terms of time and age and, and yeah. all that stuff. But that's, I, I didn't know that part. Right. So and so, um, I mean, in a, even in a bigger sense, like for a long time, I resisted doing what my father does, you know, and so um, but not entirely. I came here to Vanderbilt on a sports writing scholarship. You know, that's very unusual. It's a full tuition scholarship right. for high school sports writers. And so that's what I thought I was going to do with my career. After I graduated, I couldn't find a job in right. journalism. So I did find one here at Vandy. And I was a PR guy for the men's basketball team here for five years and then moved to Tampa and was the media relations manager for the Tampa Bay Rays their first season, which was 98 season. Oh, wow. And then came back to Nashville and was with a PR firm here for almost 20 years. And then just in the last three years, have come back to Vanderbilt and have come back to writing. You know, um, really wanted to have a creative outlet outside of work right. um, when I was at the PR firm. And so that's when I started writing a biography of Perry Wallace, which was my first book, Strong Inside, yeah. a biography of the first African-American basketball player in the SEC. Turned that into a book for kids. And so I spent the last couple of years visiting middle schools and high schools telling that story, which really is, you know, billed as a basketball book, but it's really more about civil rights and what right. it's like to be a pioneer. And, and then, I think that's, uh, I think that's consistent. Like, uh, how did, I mean, how did that book come about? Because I think that, you know, like me as an artist, uh, and I think you're an artist as well, like that idea of the practice of, of how things kind of come together. And I want to get into the, the most recent book and how that came, because I think that's a super intriguing story as well. Mm -hmm. um, but how did, how did the Perry Wallace book come about? Uh, well, really it, it, it came about in a few different ways. One was, it really just illustrates the strength of good writing or good right. artistry, right? So uh, when I was a sophomore here at Vanderbilt, there was an article written about Perry Wallace. This was 19 years after he had graduated, right. and it was the first time he was ever invited back to campus to be celebrated as the Jackie Robinson of the SEC. Right. And a kid who was a year older than me named Dave Shinen, who's now a highly regarded uh, writer at the Washington Post, sports writer, he wrote an article about Perry's first game in Starkville, Mississippi as a freshman in 1967, and how Perry thought he was going to get shot and killed just for stepping out onto the basketball court. And so that's why I say the power of good writing, because reading that anecdote about Perry is what got me interested in, in his story. And so I wrote a paper about Perry for a black history class that I was taking at that time and had a chance to interview Perry just over the phone. He was a law professor in Baltimore at that time. And it, just talking to him and writing that paper was by far the most interesting thing I'd ever done 
right. academically in my right. life. And so uh, it stayed on my mind for years after that. 17 years later, I came back to that story and said, this man, there should be a biography about him, you know, and I've never written a book before, but I've seen my dad can do it. If he can do it, I can, I can <laughs> right, do right, it, right. you know, and so... I emailed Perry and said, do you remember me? I'm a kid that wrote a paper about you. I'd like to write a biography. And I didn't need his permission. You know, anyone can write a biography of whoever they want. But I wanted to see if I could get his cooperation, at least. Right, and right, right. Do interviews and share photos and introduce me to his family. And he said, go for it. You know, <laughs> and so I really didn't know what I was in for. I thought it would take a year or two. It took me eight years. Wow. Uh, four years of research and another four years of writing. It was very difficult. I never found an agent, uh, went looking for publishers myself, you know, and so it was definitely a labor of love, but I'm so glad that I did it. It changed my life. Well, I, and you know, just to, you're an incredibly visual writer. Um, I've read both of your books and I've actually listened to the the games of deception twice because I drive a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something, it's one of those, and I think it's a, it's a talent to be able to create those moments where you can just close your eyes. I mean, if you're reading it, obviously you can't close your eyes, but <laughs> listening to it, and obviously I was driving, so I didn't close my eyes, but but that idea, <laughs> but that idea of, I, I can really see where, what you're talking about. And I think that not everybody can do that. So it, it's, I don't know. I, yeah. you know, I'm well, I appreciate you saying that because I, I think nonfiction sometimes gets a, a bad rap for being boring, you know, right. or dry, or it's just a list of names and dates and f facts. And that's not the type of nonfiction that I want to write. I want right. to write good narrative nonfiction, in my view, um, is visual, you know, and the way you can do that is through research. Right. You know, you have to read enough and interview enough people um, to really paint those pictures with your words to, to um, describe those scenes. And that's what I want to do is make reader feel like they've traveled back in time and they're right there along with those characters. So I'm really happy to hear you now, say that. I, it's again, like I actually read the first book. I think the first time we talked on the phone, which is maybe two years, I don't even know how long ago, but <laughs> yeah. what, you know, like I researched who I was talking okay, to on okay. the phone and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then I read it and I was like, whoa, this is like really intense. Mm -hmm. um, and it's both of your books actually again, are so visual and there's a sadness to them in some ways. And, and I mean, in a, just like, I can't believe humans are like this sadness, right, right. uh, especially the, the games of deception, mm -hmm. because, you know, me coming from Ohio state, Jesse Owens is a hero. Yes. And I, you know, obviously I've known the stories probably a little bit, you know, cause I know people that knew, that knew him, not directly, but, uh, and to know like what he did, it's like this is a, the, such a heroic thing. But then to like realize that how he was treated, and it's just sad. And it's and it's and to think it's really it's only eighty years ago. And I, I mean, to, it's yeah. it's amazing to me like that we were like that and we we're still like that. Some not us, but there's still people that are like that. And the one thing I, I was you know maybe we'll get into the book a little bit now mm -hmm. because I'm tangently going off and stuff this idea that sports is kind of the great bringing people together kind of thing and you there's like the kind of a dismissal of that in the book in in, in ways do you still feel i mean and that's not necessarily your opinion that's right. what it was but because i still think that sports does bring people together mm -hmm. but at times it doesn't and right. it's and it's i mean it's a weird yeah, I mean, I think I'm obviously someone that loves sports, yeah. you know, and have and have believed that over the years. I think that it does, but it doesn't always, like you said. Yeah. So one of the um, the really interesting quotes that I came across as I was researching the book was actually at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and it was the director of the museum who said that sports is just neutral. Right. You know, and a lot of times people who love sports feel that sports is inherently good and positive, you know. And she was saying, no, that's not true. It depends on who are the people involved and what decisions are they making, you know. Right. And so um, you can look at the sports landscape now and say sports provides opportunities or brings people together or promotes um, good values and physical fitness. But then you could also see players being blackballed for their political beliefs, right, yep. or, or athletes abused by do team doctors, you know, yep. or 
uh, athletes' lives ruined through concussions yep. or um, uh, corruption in, in uh, securing the Olympics for a city, you know, or money being spent in bizarre ways, right? right so right. it's not always positive. Right. You know, and I think that if you just – if you understanding that is important because, I mean, that's that's real, you know, yep. and sometimes we build up these, these myths – um, that just are fantasy. They're not true, right? And right. so I think you can appreciate Jesse Owens even more by understanding that not everything that he experienced was entirely positive, right. you know? So, yes, he does win these gold medals at the Berlin Olympics, and that is portrayed as, you know, showing Hitler the, um, that Aryan supremacy was the, the myth of Aryan supremacy, right. right? But then he comes back to the United States, and uh, he has to ride the service elevator up to yep. an awards banquet, and his wife's not even allowed in. And then this hero is not even pictured in the U.S. recap of the Olympics. They put a book together. Guy who wins four gold medals, they don't even put his picture in there I, because he's black. And then he, he, no one will hire him for a job. And so he has to race against horses at minor league baseball stadiums yep. to earn a buck. And so that's the full picture. Yep. And I think it's important to portray that in a book yep. and not just the heroic feats on the track. No, and I, like again, and see that's thinking of your book again is – and we'll, we'll talk more about this, is this idea is like that Olympics to me was always Jesse Owens. That's that never, ever even heard that the 36 Olympics was the first basketball Olympics. Mm-hmm. Never knew that until, until your book. And to me, that's where, wow. And then you know, why don't you get in? Like, I think the story of how, and I heard this on Jeremy Shap's podcast of how you, well, actually, maybe it was in the after. Okay. I don't know. Where I, where I read it, heard it, that how you came about this. And again, like this is the where the the idea comes from and how the research came about. But I think it's pretty interesting. Right. Okay. So I guess part of it is I was um, open to just discovering a new idea for a book wherever it may come from. So that's right. one lesson of this probably, you know. And so I happened to be in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, to speak about Strong Inside, my first book, and uh, never been there before. Really wanted to see Allen Fieldhouse, just right. you know, admiring the Jayhawks basketball. <laughs> and so um, took a tour there, and they have an incredible Hall of Fame of Kansas basketball that's really just as good as the Basketball yeah, Hall of yeah. Fame in Massachusetts. And um, they have uh, James Naismith's original rules of basketball there because Naismith, after he left Springfield college in Massachusetts came to be the athletic director and the first basketball coach at Kansas. And so they bid in an auction uh, on these rules. And so under glass, like if you've ever been to DC and you see the constitution or the declaration of independence under glass, that's how they have the original rules of basketball. And right next to it, they had a picture of Naismith with some Japanese basketball players from the 1930s. And the guy who was showing me around said, did you realize that the inventor of basketball was able to go to the Olympics to see his invention make its Olympic debut. And I didn't know that either. And I said, well, which Olympics was that? And when he said it was the 36 Olympics in Nazi Germany, like right there and then I figured, well, this this could be a great book. You know, it's a way to talk about the invention and, and growth of this incredible sport in the context of these controversial Olympics. That's exactly what I'm looking for is a sports story that has a bigger social message to it isn't you know? it surprising though that it i i, I mean maybe yeah. it is because of the weight of jesse owens that it, that it no one knows that right yeah i think it is surprising uh, as big as basketball is these right. days as popular as the dream teams have been Absolutely. you know um and i think there's a couple reasons for that one uh in 36 basketball was not a big deal right. at all um <coughs> there's all there's construction going on here yeah. again. <laughs> is that all right yeah yeah, okay. yeah. It's, 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 it's natural sound through, yeah. right <laughs> Um, so, uh, the, the basketball was played outside. Uh, there were hardly any fans there. There was no NBA then. So it wasn't like these guys uh, went on to big famous careers as professional basketball players. Um, crew was actually a much bigger sport. And so the book boys in the boat about the rowing competition, that gold medal, uh, crew race took place at the exact same time as the gold medal basketball game. And so I think those sort of conspired, uh, against that uh, basketball really being, a big deal at the time and people considering it later but i don't know why other people haven't explored this too much there is one good book uh about this olympic basketball team called netting out 1936 it's by a guy named rich hughes who lives in kansas city is self-published and so his book was not um sort of nationally recognized um, um so i had an opportunity to do this and um loved writing a story that i figured most people 
uh, would not know. You know, and that's the same way it was with the story about Perry Wallace also. I'd rather write a book about someone who's been written out of history or an event that hasn't been covered too much as opposed to one that it'd be that maybe the fifth or tenth take right, right, on right. a particular subject. No, and I think that that's what, yeah, again, and I'm, I'm going to tell everybody to please go get this book because it is visually intriguing. It's, it, it's just something I don't think is in the social conscience. And, and to understand, you know, what, again, the, the Olympics of what Jesse Owens did, but it's also just that it, it, it's never, I, the way that you tell the story is so fascinating to me because there's all these backstories, there's all these kind of ways that things are intertwining and kind of going off into like to learn about uh, Brundage mm -hmm. and I mean like what an asshole first of yes. all I mean like and it's amazing to me that he became the IOC president yeah, he got promoted I mean, it's, like, after it's being a, like, a Nazi I mean I could, it's yeah. crazy to me like again like, it, it goes to this the goodness of sports but then just like the the corruption that happens everywhere in, in right. the world, but it's like, it's, it's somewhere where yeah, that sports think. is not immune right. from that, right. you know? And so one of the uh, backstories in this book was about the um, boycott effort in the United States prior to the Olympics and whether should we, we should even participate And yeah. looking back on it, you know, how, how could you send your Olympic team to Hitler's right. Germany? Um, and so people were recognizing that even at the time. And yet the, the main proponent of going was Avery Brundage, who was the head of the American Olympic committee, um, who had a variety of reasons why he was in favor of participation. One is he admired Hitler and the right. Olympic and the Nazis and um, went on a, what was supposed to be a fact-finding trip to Berlin um, to assess the situation there and was accompanied by Nazis everywhere he went. Even when he interviewed Jewish athletes, uh, he assured his Nazi host that his club in Chicago also wouldn't let Jews into his club. So he was trying to you know not offend right. the Nazis. I uh, went to his archives at the University of Illinois and discovered all sorts of anti-Semitic newsletters and magazines that he was subscribing to. People would write him letters of support that were signed Heil Hitler, Heil Brundage, and he would write them back with complimentary uh, responses. And also his construction firm was set to build a new German embassy right. in Washington, D.C. And so he didn't want to upset the Nazis by not U.S. not coming to the Olympics or he'd lose business. You know, So he was compromised in just sort of selfish financial ways right. also. No, and that I, influenced the course of... Of history, other countries were looking at what the United States would do. Would we go or not? They might boycott too if we boycotted. Right, but because of uh, Brundage and his influence. And I did we hear, went. I did hear that you you said that they probably should have boycotted, or they should have boycotted. Yeah, I, would, I mean, in retrospect, that's easy. To yeah, say. yeah, no, I agree. But, but I, I wanted to look and see well, what were. Were, were people really making that decision even back then? And some people were. People who were paying attention to what was happening in, in Germany with an open mind right. were in favor of boycotting. There was a great basketball team at Long Island University that was undefeated that likely would have been a contender uh, to represent the United States in, the, in basketball in the Olympics. Um, and they chose to boycott the qualifying tournament in the United States. So to say that no one really had an understanding, even college, but some basketball, right. college basketball players right. had a good enough understanding to boycott. I, I, it's I, again, like it is the hindsight part of our, of this equation is again, to li to read and to listen to your book and, and to, to understand the dynamics. I find it, I mean, hard to believe that we did not, but then, when you understand who was kind of heading it up, that it makes sense that we did not boycott yeah. it. And there's still, I mean, you look at today, I, I usually people will say, you can tell what decision you would have made in the past by what decision you right, make it today. Right. And there's plenty of people still that say, you know, keep sports and politics separate, separate. right? Yeah. And, and I, I feel that um, when people make that argument, they're not really acknowledging reality that sports and politics have right. always been intertwined. Absolutely. And the Olympics is the best example yep. of that. I mean, countries bid on hosting them. Countries athletes compete as countries yep. how you perform is seen as sort of a representation of the strength of your model of society you yep. know and, and uh, the 36 olympics obviously the ultimate example of, of sports and politics where hitler the reason he wanted to host the olympics was as propaganda to fool the world into believing everything was just fine in germany yeah no it's again like it's just it's kind of mind-boggling to me to i mean you know again it's a hindsight thing but I, I mean, I want to think about future too. Like I'm, I want to obviously keep talking about your book um, mm -hmm. and you know, but also like how 
or, or have you started thinking of a new book? Yes, I mean, I'm actually I, start writing already, it right okay, now. Okay, I thought you said you were yes. like have already started. <laughs> Do we want to like? Yeah, talk? I'm happy to okay. talk about it. Okay. Um, so this is one that wasn't my idea. It was an idea that was proposed to me, and I'm oh, sure cool. when people find out. Um, you're an artist, maybe they'll suggest something. And a lot of times you sort of resist what other people sure. suggest. You know, you want to have that idea come up right. from in, inside of you. It's guttural. Uh, yes. <laughs> but in this case, um, I mentioned before when I wrote my first book, I didn't have an agent. You know, right. since that book came out, I do now, literary agent, Alex Shane in New York with Writer's House. And he understood, we've talked about how what I want to try to carve out is my thing is writing um, serious narrative nonfiction with the sports and social justice related angle yep. for um, from young readers on up. And so one day he uh, emailed and suggested Glenn Burke, a biography of Glenn Burke. And Glenn was the first openly gay Major League Baseball player. He played for the Dodgers and the A's in the late 70s. I love baseball. I remember having Glenn Burke's baseball oh. card. I think I, I can picture his 78 tops baseball card with the Dodgers. I love that. I, just, I mean, I sort of kind of love that. And so I thought, yeah, that's another story that would be really interesting to write. Again, I don't think most people know Glenn Burke's story. Right. Um, he was a trailblazer. And I think that um, the time is right for a story about a gay athlete, especially a male athlete. Um, and having visited a lot of middle schools and high schools around the country the last couple of years, I think this is a story that kids will be receptive to. Yep. I think when I was in middle school, not boys would not have read right. that book. I wouldn't have read that book, nope. you know, and I'm ashamed to say that, but I just wouldn't have. It's a different and, time. Yeah. And so um, I'm really excited to write it. I've written the first 16 chapters. Wow. Uh, since it's kind of Christmas break right now, I've got a little time away from work and um so aside from building Legos with my kids, I've <laughs> been working on the, on the book. So I'm excited to have some time. I've, I've got to finish it by February. Wow. So that, and I'm a, only about halfway done. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I think that there's, your books obviously have a lot of the research component. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm assuming, like you said, the first book, you didn't have, like, it took eight years to write. So you, the research really overwhelmed you would that be a good way to say it i mean yeah, not in a good way yeah, but yeah yeah it consumed me like yeah. every minute that i wasn't at work or hanging out with my i mean i got married and had two kids in the middle right. of that eight years also <laughs> so and it was a side project outside a regular job right. like a lot of artists yep. you know it um so it wasn't you know literally every minute for eight years but right. it was it took me eight years to find the time to do right. it with these last two books i've had contracts that have required me to finish Dictated in a year time, right you know and so it's wow. really been compressed because i assume that the, the current games of deception the the potential and what you've written about the research is just yeah out i mean of control you, you, you could read books about the nazis for the rest yeah. of your life you yeah. know yeah so i had to be um i guess doing enough research even before I was really doing the research right, to right, figure right. out okay what do I really need to read right. uh, for this book um I lucked out in a way it was a completely different experience than writing about Perry Wallace who was alive the whole time I was writing his biography I could interview him whenever I wanted right with the 36 Olympics all the basketball players were dead so yeah. I didn't one of the most time-consuming parts of research for me is you know finding people setting up an interview traveling to visit them interviewing them transcribing the interview right. I didn't really have that experience with Games of Deception because I didn't really rely on interviews for this book. It was more uh, reading old newspaper articles, reading other books, visiting archives, that sort of thing. There were yeah, some but there's so many there's so many beautiful points in that book that you know just even the, the Naismith part that comes in, you know, the inventor of basketball and how how he goes to the Olympics to see and then his not even being able to go to the game at first, like he yes. didn't have tickets. I mean, it's it's crazy, like. There's just so many different like little nuggets in that book that I think are really fascinating, intriguing, whatever you want to say uh, about how everything came together. And then just again, like the umbrella of what it meant that the game itself uh, mm -hmm. or the game, because again, we didn't talk about this, but the games were played outdoors. Right. Uh, they were on tennis courts, if yes, I remember play correctly. Tennis play tennis courts. Which, you know, it turned to a big muddy soupy mess, and and it wasn't real basketball. I mean, it was not the the what you know, not <laughs> right. the basketball as you use today. Yeah. And it's like I think I remember what movie was that? Uh, it was an Olympic movie where the the shot putters were throwing 
heavier shot puts oh. and they didn't know and then they yeah. went to the to the olympics and they were lighter so they were like throwing them like <laughs> it's just like those yeah. those little nuggets, little nuggets i think of the research that you know that i think really make this this book so it's just a great read um and how again a story that i'm so glad you told because I didn't know anything about it. And I'm like such a huge sports fan. And again, uh, my Ohio state relationship to the, to the Jesse Owens thing, but then to understand that this Olympics wasn't just him and, and and how it umbrellaed out. And I've used umbrella twice now. You say that because I've had some um, reviewers or interviewers who are very familiar with different aspects of the story and also who are very unfamiliar with it. So I was talking to one woman who didn't realize that there were Olympics in Nazi Germany. She hadn't heard of the 36 Olympics. Other people are, you know, very familiar with Jesse Owens story. Other people are very familiar with the the Nazis and the Hitler side of the story. Some people have been out to Kansas where they're very familiar with Naismith's story and with half of the U.S. men's basketball team came from a tiny town in Kansas. So they know that part of the story. So it's been an interesting experience for me talking about this to different people and what like what is their connection point right. to the story, if any. And then also in writing a book like that, and especially writing a book that I hope would be read from, like I said, middle schoolers on up. Like yep. my books are billed as young adult books, but you read it as an adult and you didn't feel like you were reading Dr. Seuss or something. No. Right? Like I want this book, just the only reason why it would be called YA necessarily is because it's a little bit shorter than a typical adult book but i think adults appreciate that now you know with oh, the, yeah, yeah. the time people have yep. um and then also uh just that i'd like to go to schools and get kids interested in reading through sports so right. that's a big part of the the, the job no, and i think me. that's actually that that component i really I personally really like that again going back to sports is kind of a pulse for for america like mm-hmm. i mean all the way back, like we, baseball is kind of in the culture of the United States, whether you like sports or not. That's right, just right. what it was. But that idea of how you're writing with sports and, and the social component, we are also a very socially, particularly now, um, right now, very engaged. And, and younger adults finally are actually, you know, I think you, you were saying that about your new book that's going to mm-hmm. come out. We probably wouldn't have read it back then because it's, we weren't supposed to like right. that the, the bad way to say that, but that's the, but now it's like people are aware they're becoming more engaged in everything that's social, you know, and, and I think especially young people, teenagers. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, that's what I, I think of sports as it's something I love, but I also think it's something that's very accessible to right. a wide range of people, you know, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, like, yep. Sports is kind of a part of everybody's life to yep. some degree, especially kids. And so that's what the hook is with all my books. And then the important part of it with Strong Inside was about racism with uh, games of deception. It's also racism and anti-Semitism. Um, and the overarching message of both of those books is the difference between being a bystander and an upstander. You yep. know, And that's what I hope kids will take away from it is that in both cases, there people were being treated unjustly and others that were sort of in the periphery of that situation had a decision to make whether they were going to just uh, say, well, that's somebody else's problem. It's not mine. I don't, not going to show empathy for them and I'm not going to get involved. Or if they were going to step up and try to help uh, these people that were being treated unfairly. And so that's the message I hope kids will take away from, from those first two books. You tell some, some stories in, in games of deception that are, that I think are really, really wild because again, it's hard to, you know, again, this is a hindsight thing. I, I wasn't alive then, but to understand what Nazi Germany was, but then to have people like going to dinners with with Nazi German, yeah. uh, I mean, soldiers and, and the story that of was the two basketball guys that took the train all the way to the end of the oh, track. Yes, and, yes. and there's just, there's there, again, I, I use the word nuggets, but there's all these stories that... I mean, I can't imagine them happening. And Jesse Owens becoming good friends with... With one of the German uh, track stars. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, mean, I think that just sort of shows this great historical... Uh, I use great not in the positive sense, but a large historical yeah. um, 
event that we study in history books, but to remember that people actually like lived every day in, in these yeah. circumstances. And so for a, an American athlete who was in those Olympics, I mean, they existed, they did things during the day that looking back now, you'd be like, oh, that must've been so scary or your life was in danger for even doing that. Jewish athletes I write about who took a, um, they were the ones that took the subway or the train yeah. out to the end of the line. And then they're stopped by a couple of, of Nazis who asked, asked to inspect their IDs. And I think one of them had slipped up and used some Yiddish instead of German. And they're like, oh, gosh, they're going to figure who, yeah. aren't who we are. And then they come back with their passports and they simply ask for their autograph. Yeah. You know, And so those little human moments, I think, are important in showing kids, especially, that, um, you know, that these times that we read about in the history books, you know, there were there were everyday moments that were occurring during those times, and people had decisions to make uh, as real human beings about how they were going to react to what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. And so that's where I think that these books about history can inform the present, you know, and to show kids, yes, it was just regular people who were living through these times, just right. like you're a regular person living through certain times now, and you have these decisions to make every day about what you're going to do in response to what you're seeing and, and reading about. Yeah. Now it, it's again, that the visualness of your word, I, I, what maybe besides your parents, but like, and your grandparents, but what writers inspire you? Like, who do you, like, who yeah. do you read? Who do you, um, because I mean, again, like, and maybe, maybe I can ask this question, what writers inspire, but you also love sports. Mm -hmm. Like what you're a Wisconsin guys. So you said earlier, like, Bucks, Green Bay Packers, and and uh, Brewers. Brewers. Yeah. And like, it, okay, first of all, like basketball or baseball? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, baseball was the okay. sport I always played. Okay. Good. So Good. I played that through high school. Right. In, uh, I would have played at a small D3 school called McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, yeah. if I had not but they don't give any athletic scholarships. Yeah. So, and I wasn't good enough to go anywhere that gave athletic scholarships, <laughs> but I came here to Vanderbilt instead. Um, so baseball is my sport that I always loved playing and the do most. You, do you College see a baseball, basketball, though, I love to watch. Do you see a baseball book ever? I mean, like yeah, well, this, this one, the, like, is that, does that make you happy? Yes. I mean, you yeah, know I, I mean? love it because yeah. I've interviewed players that I followed, you yeah. know, um, from well-known players like Dusty Baker yep. had a great interview with him to oh, cool. less well-known players who I just loved their names or yeah. on their baseball <laughs> card, like Shooty Babbitt yep. from the yep. old Oakland A's. Yes. Remember? Yes. So that was really fun for me. Yep. And what I want to do in all my books is to write with enough authority as a sports person that hardcore sports fan is going to say, okay, this guy knows basketball yep. or he knows baseball, but also enough authority on the historical side that a professor of yep of you know world war ii or something is right. going to say he did his work there also wanted to quickly remind everyone to check out the abstract athlete training journal it's available on our web shop and on Amazon. And again, wanted to remind everybody to check out Andrew Marinus's books. They're available on Amazon, Penguin, Random House, and other platforms. Now back to Andrew Marinus. I can, I listen to this book twice, not for research purposes, but because I think that it's interesting. And like, I hear different things and you, and then like maybe the second time you hear it, it's like, wow. And, and so those kind of moments to me, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. That's the gushing. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You're a great writer. Exactly. But <laughs> and then uh, your other part of the question is like, who, when my dad was writing for the Washington Post as I was growing up. And so I was reading a good newspaper every morning. Right. And I think that mattered. Um, also, what was fun back then and helped me also become a big sports guy is we had season tickets to Georgetown basketball oh, back when Patrick Ewing geez. was playing there. You know, sort of the those, the those years, the heyday of, of Big East basketball, you know, and I was really into Georgetown. Yeah. And I remember when they played against Virginia and Ralph Sampson at the Capitol Center, we went to that game. Um, the Brewers 
this was that was like in the early 80s yep. same time my favorite team Gorman the Thomas went to the World Series in 82 yep. Gorman Thomas Robin Yao Paul Molitor yep. Cecil Cooper yep. Ben Ogilvy those are all my yep. that's my team yep. you know and then I was kind of a Fairweather um, Redskins fan at that time also <laughs> I was really a Packers guy but yep. we lived in DC and that's back in the Theismann Riggins fun bunch yep. hogs era yep. of the Redskins and so I was following some good teams yep. you know and I think as a 12 year old kid when your teams are doing really well that's going <laughs> to stick with you yep. you know and I, I love the atmosphere at those Georgetown basketball games it was like there is nothing game. like college basketball particularly in the the sweets or the March Madness stuff yeah. and you got to be happy now because you have a new coach here <laughs> in Vanderbilt yeah, yeah Jerry Stackhouse yeah. it's exciting to have him here yeah. um and yeah, I mean, Memorial Gym here at, at Vandy, when I arrived here as a freshman and went to my first game there, uh, a player named Barry Goheen made a three-pointer from half court to beat <laughs> Louisville at the buzzer. And I was sold, you know, and I, we had my rehearsal dinner here at right. the gym also. I mean, like this gym is a big part <laughs> of my life. That's great. Um, and then still going back to your question about who did I read, like John Feinstein, yeah. uh, right? Oh, yeah. Author of sports books. He was good friends of my father, even before he wrote sports. He was a reporter for the Metro Department oh, at really? the Washington Post. Yeah, and he was the first person I had ever interviewed. I created my own sports magazine when I was 13 years old. That's... wrote about the Packers and the Brewers and uh, interviewed John Feinstein. You know? <laughs> and I remember... Do you still have that? Yeah, I have oh, it. I have a picture great. of it that I show kids when I'm oh, talking to them. You know, I'm not just appear on earth as an author. Right. I'm just like you writing a little sports magazine, yeah. you know, and... Um, I remember when he, uh, before he wrote Season on the Brink about Indiana basketball, he had covered an Indiana game, and he, I asked him if he could get Bobby Knight's autograph for me, which <laughs> reporters do not do. Like, that's right. against every journalism code of ethics. But he did, and, and Bobby Knight signed this, his program. He's like, Andy, I am 32-2 and two against Wisconsin. Like, so <laughs> even taking a dig at, like, his nine-year-old kid. <laughs> That doesn't surprise me at all. I used to actually trick or treat from Woody Hayes because he, oh, really? he lived in my hometown. Yeah, punch you? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Hopefully that whole scenario doesn't take place with Ohio State Clemson this time. But, uh, right. But yeah. So Feinstein was someone I was reading his books. Um, Eric Larson, who doesn't write uh -huh. sports, but he's a great narrative nonfiction writer. Devil in the White City is one of his yep. well-known books. Uh, there's an author, James Swanson, that writes really interesting historical uh, narrative nonfiction uh, Bob Woodward, Howard Bob Bryant, Woodward. Um, my dad's books. You yeah. know, I mean, obviously, he's been the biggest yeah. influence on me I mean, as the, an author. The, you said, you know, you. I don't want to say you knew, like you, you resisted be doing what your dad did forever, but at the same time, you, you, know, you just said you were doing that kind of stuff when you were 13 anyways. Right. So it was definitely, I don't want to say it was in the cards, not the tops cards, but, the, <laughs> but that idea of like you really enjoy it yeah. and you're really good at it and that I. And to to actually be able to have that John Feinstein that that's that's really cool. I was really that's, lucky to I have mean, these people that um, to me you know I'm like sometimes people say what's it like to have a dad who's an author or a yeah. Pulitzer Prizer. You don't think about that. It's just like your dad, your dad. you yeah. know, right? And so I didn't think about who these people were. Um, yeah, Feinstein or. Woodward come to our house. He, I remember he was the first person that ever showed me a Walkman. And like, I was just blown away. Like, you can't hear what I'm hearing in these headphones. And he bought me my first uh, records. They were little 45s of yeah. Safety Dance. And uh, I have the Tiger, I think. Um, <laughs> and so these were just people that were in our life. Like, anyone else has friends who are in their life. But I was, then I would see their stories in the paper and I would read it because I, I know that person, you know. And so as a kid, I was sort of through osmosis, just reading good writing. And I think that that um, had to have some sort of effect. Right. Do you ever, I mean, this is a random, you, you said something that made me think, do you ever think of your books being adapted to like almost a mini series or anything? Oh, I'd love that. Or, because I do, yeah. I do see, I th actually I see both of them potentially, particularly Games of Deception, I think, having almost a mini series quality about them. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, again, it's like a 30 for 30 moments that happen within these stories but in a bigger scale yeah maybe. absolutely i think they would both work well as documentaries or yep. you know acted films right. feature films and um i've gotten a little bit of exposure to that uh one thing i know is that that's a lot easier said than done yeah, you know, yeah. and that uh, most authors think that their books would make great movies <laughs> and then struggle to uh 
see it happen even we'll get the options purchased by someone and then there's that whole phase of raising money or finding right. uh, producers and screenwriters and all that so yes i think that both these books because they are told in a really visual way and they um, there's such tension in them and yet triumph also that sports movies i think sort of have this built-in uh, formula to yep. them and i try to avoid that easy formula in my books but i do think that there are these moments of of struggle and tension and triumph yep. that you need in a, a dramatic and, film. And, and again, I think Games of Deception is so, there is all of those things. And and even in the heroic moments, it's almost, it, the, the basketball game was played, you know, yes. maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah. The, how so the, that's a, you know, a couple of reasons why a book's called Games of Deception. One is the deception that was, that was Berlin at that time yep. and how it was a facade that was meant to fool the world. But also I thought, you know, here's basketball, which the kid watching the Olympics now is going to recognize LeBron James and Kevin Durant and yeah. whoever these most famous athletes in the whole world are on the United States Olympic basketball team. Someone my age remembers the dream team, you yeah. know, and uh, yet you go back to the beginnings of Olympic basketball. It was a farce, you yeah. know, so it's kind of deceptive in what we think of this big sport now, how little it was then. And the fact that they had to play outside on clay tennis courts in the rain the gold medal game is 19 to 8 which was a terrible low scoring game even for those days yep. you know the players in the second half just wanted the game to get over they're just playing keep away basically because <laughs> they're standing in the mud in the rain they didn't want to be out there and so um yeah i thought that was a fun part to write about an interesting part to write about and also uh, like you said i mean this what we might think of this glorious moment where james nathan this Naismith invents the game. He's able to go to Berlin, see his game played for the gold medal in the Olympics, and yet, what a joke of a game! I, <laughs> on the world stage, and yeah. they're playing. Yeah, I, it's I don't know. I, I think it's just like the 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 roller coaster ride of this um, per chapter is really interesting, and I think that's it's very um, it's very three dimensional. I guess is a way that I I think about it because. It's like there's this component here. Then there's one. I'm I'm pointing my fingers in different directions. <laughs> but and how how you really tie everything together to come again to come to the end, which again is the game of deception, which I think is just it, it's almost funny, and not in a ha ha way, but just I don't know. And I love the idea of the the players coming into the into the opening ceremony and just like this is a joke yeah. you know and, and they're getting pooped on by yeah, pigeons I mean it's just like it's just it yeah. like the whole story is is it I don't know it's just wonderful and then so. well thank you and one of the full circle moments that you know I guess that's a difference that I had to learn in writing a book versus writing an article you know right. is that I like how you said it sort of all came together at the end. That's what you're building towards right. in a book that you can pace yourself and, and build towards something and drop little nuggets along the way that add up to something. And I had to learn how to do that. But I would also say my favorite um, full circle moment of the book is what happens 10 years after the Olympics, after the Nuremberg trials, when the um, executions of these Nazi war criminals are going to happen at the Nuremberg Palace of Justice. And so you've had... Uh, uh, the birth of international basketball at the Nazi Olympics and you have the death of the Nazis symbolically in these in these hangings um, or the, the literal death of the Nazis but the symbolic death of Nazi Germany take place of all places on a basketball court and yeah. that, that's where the American guards decided they were going to wheel the gallows in was into their favorite spot uh, on the grounds of this Nuremberg Palace of Justice. It was the basketball court. And I, when I found that little nugget, like I was so it's excited. Like light, it was yeah. like the light bulb. Right? <laughs> Ding! Yeah. Got it. So, yeah. um, so do you, I'm going to go on my sports tangent. I like to say, mm -hmm. you love college basketball. I assume you go to Vandy games all the time. Do you go, like you travel obviously a lot. Mm -hmm. um, like, do you get to go to games a lot? I um, mean, yeah, like, I love to. And, uh, my kids and I, we have um, a map at our house now that has a little circle. Uh, my sister gave us this where you put a sticker at every Major League Baseball stadium oh, you've awesome. been to. So our goal now is to go to every stadium together. I've been to all but two myself. But my, Which? Uh, Arizona and, okay. and Denver. Okay. They're um, the only two I have left to go. Okay. But my our family, my wife and our kids, we've been to 11 stadiums together. So we're That's trying awesome. to fill up that map 
um, yeah, whenever I'm somewhere on a trip, I look and see if there's a game of some type Absolutely. No, happening. I, I, you know, I, I, I love, love to that. do that. Yeah. I love I, No, because I, I do the same thing. I try to go to – I'm way behind you, by the way. Uh, but, I, you know, there's – again, just thinking of baseball in particular and how – going to Fenway was – it was, I don't know. I mean, it was like life changing. Yes. And the crazy part is, I went by myself. Okay. And I had just been in Boston, and I was visiting a friend outside of Boston. I was like, I've never been to Fenway. I'm going to go back. And I'm sitting there on the first base side, and all of a sudden, this guy I used to play with comes in to pitch for the Reds. <laughs> and I was just sitting there. I was like, this is surreal that I'm in Fenway. I know a guy pitching, wow. and and like, but I that idea of going to Wrigley or Fenway, these old ballparks, yes. does that upset you that all these ballparks are changing a in some bit. ways? Yeah, I love going to those stadiums. The game feels different, doesn't it? Yep. I mean, the stands are closer to the field. Yep. It just feels like a more magical game, I think, than in a super modern park. Um, as a Brewers fan... <laughs> There's no doubt that like, Miller Park is, is better than County Stadium was, but I still had I more fun County at County St- Stadium. You know, um, I was actually pleasantly surprised by the new Marlins Stadium. Our family was down in Miami a couple years ago, and I liked it. It really fit the city, I felt like. Um, it wasn't uh, kind of the, the retro park that so many teams yep. have done. It was more modern and felt sort of hip. You have to like be Miami. kind of happy this year that the Nationals won. You have to have a little bit of – even though they weren't there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I really don't have any affinity to them. And I was not happy whatsoever <laughs> as a Met fan, but yeah. In, in Major League Baseball, I mean, Brewers are by yeah. far number one. Everyone yeah. else, even though I work for the Rays, they're number two, but they're way, way down, down. And everybody else is in a jumble at the bottom. In <laughs> um, mentioning your friend that was pitching for the Reds, that's one fun thing about working in a college athletic department is that you see yep. guys leave here and then go yep. on to play. Well, and I did want to talk about this. You're, you're a writer in residence, which I think the overlap of where you extend in your job, I think is really cool. Um, so I give props to Vandy because I think that they really do a great job um, of connecting creativity and athletics. Mm-hmm. And I think you're doing and I can't speak specifically, but I think what I think you're doing and what I, we've talked you're doing is like really incredible. And maybe you want to talk a little bit of that because um, you're it's writer in residence, correct? Is the title? Yeah, and, and not just at the university, but it's specifically at the athletic, athletic department, department, which right. I don't think exists anywhere else, right. which I'm really proud of. Right. You know, but I do think it fits kind of the culture of this place is trying to be a school that obviously competes in the SEC, which is you know your big ten guy, but hard, like those yeah. are the biggest conferences <laughs> yep. in the country. And yet also tries to maintain um, the proper focus on that this is a college, you know, right. and that we want these student athletes to really be students and to be exposed to a lot yep. of different things. And so they've created um, creative uh, internship programs and study abroad for athletes, which doesn't happen everywhere, you know. And, then, and, and I think uh, that, you know, having you come and right. put on your, your presentation with other former athletes that have yep. gone into the arts and just sort of exposing um, student athletes while they're here for these three, four, five years to the broader world is really important. Well, again, thinking about when, when you and I went to school, that would never have happened. And I, I think the – I actually had a, have had a student at Virginia Commonwealth that I won't mention name, but he's, he's, he was a well-known athlete that the coach told him he couldn't take art classes. And to me, that's – we're finding out what creativity does for our minds and mm-hmm. actually it can help performance. Yes. And so, like, I think what you guys are doing here – is along the same lines of like you're really giving back and allowing them. I always use that word allowance because, you know, when I brought the athletes here, it's like it gives people permission yes. to do stuff. Yes. Because when you see a six foot four huge former football player that makes these beautiful paintings or sculptures or whatever, oh, I can do that. And so, like, I think what you're doing as well, just it gives athletes permission to be creative even though they are Mm -hmm. they just don't know that they're allowed to yeah yeah and i think it's wonderful what you do and um in your job and on this podcast and connecting all these people in the country that have similar interests that's really important um the idea of giving athletes permission to be a human being like it's so sad that we have to say that you know true though but um it's needed and i think that a coach that would prohibit an athlete from taking an art class that's such an old fashioned way of thinking and it's counterproductive. I mean, if your athletes are happy and they're becoming 
who they want to be. And that's been good for recruiting, right? I mean, I well, that's to a, say, like, you have these opportunities at our yep. school to become the very best version of, yep. of yourself. Like, why wouldn't you want to be? Well, and I think that? that's what what I, I'm hoping that universities are changing for that. That the. the I don't want to say less rigid because that it's not that per se, but right. it's it's that less rigid in in the kind of the the straight line of getting a degree. And it's like, well, no, let's let's allow a little moments for this to happen, and maybe even require these things. <laughs> to, you know, right? I mean, I, shoot, maybe that athlete would get a degree in art. You right. know, I mean. That, I've heard of uh, of schools where they'll um, steer student athletes away from what are perceived to be difficult majors, you know, right. to maintain their eligibility yeah. also. And that's really shooting yourself in I, the foot also. I, I mean, that, and then it goes back to what I'm trying to do with kids in middle school is say, we all have different interests. It doesn't necessarily matter what you're interested in. Pursue what you're interested yeah. in. You know, and I found a quote that I use in my presentations that says that, Students often avoid subjects that are close to their heart when they assume that their teacher will think that topic is stupid. You know, and, and it says there's no area of life that's stupid that someone to someone who takes it seriously. Yep. And that's the way I felt when I wrote my very first paper about Perry Wallace is my professor. I thought was going to say, you can't just write about basketball in college like that's not serious enough. But when she said, go for it, if that's what you want to do, do it. That teacher, when I was 19 years old, awesome. has influenced the whole rest of my life. Yep. You know, if she had had that other attitude, I don't know, I, I wouldn't be sitting here. With no, you. that's. I mean, that's like you said, that's awesome because it, it it gave you permission, right? And that that idea, and the Perry Wallace story is far beyond a basketball player. Yeah, absolutely. And and so it, it is. I don't know. Um, we're gonna start wrapping up. We're about in that hour point, but we we do stupid shit All on right. that show. <laughs> But some of we've we've actually already we we started doing this the last the last podcast. Excellent. Um, trying to ask these like five questions. It might not be five because again, some of it I already embedded in in some of the questions. <laughs> but so, what are your favorite artists? Not necessarily. Like it could be it could be writers. Right. Uh, it could be musicians. It right. could be. Um, it could be any type it of It could artist. be, a, yeah, any, yeah. All right, that's a great question. I haven't prepared to answer that one. <laughs> See, this is what the five questions is about. <laughs> well, literally right now, my favorite artists are my kids. There you go. That's <laughs> you awesome. got to say that, That's right? awesome. I have that's a third awesome. daughter, Eliza, and she'll be so excited to hear her name in the podcast. <laughs> She's in third grade. This morning, one of the things she wanted for Christmas was some art projects. That's what that's relaxes her. Perfect. You know? And so we I, were, have to, I have to give you one of our... Um, I'll give you, th- how many kids do you have? Two? two. I'll have to give you two of our uh, journals. Oh, awesome. before I leave. Thank so, you. Yeah. So she got from my mom a, a little kit to paint ceramic tiles and to paint rocks. Yes. And so we were working on those together this morning. And then my son, Charlie, who's in kindergarten, loves to build Legos. And that's, that's kind of artistic pursuit yeah. also, right? Yeah. So we spend a lot of time in our family uh, on various art projects. That's um, awesome. I love uh, photography um, documentaries, yep. you know, so to the extent film is, is art also. Yep. I, I don't, not someone that like has a collection of an individual person, but I love um, even like documentary style black and white news photography yeah, yeah, different yeah. scenes. I was looking through a book of photos from Nashville of the civil rights movement that um, just came out last year. And it's a fascinating book and kind of also explodes myths the way I try to do in my books too. And Nashville was always perceived as a place that was different from the rest of the South in civil rights era, not quite as, as violent and vicious as other places. And it's true to an extent, but these photos that they found for this book show that that's a bit of a myth also. And right. it was just as difficult here as a lot of other spots. No, that's awesome. So maybe, maybe in the, like a little sidebar, like what, and this is a hard person for a Wisconsin guy <laughs> because there's so many great athletes. What's your favorite athlete? Well, I mean, there's like yeah. maybe time periods. Well, one, one way I'll say it, <laughs> Is that I think it's really interesting that three of my all-time favorite athletes all wore the same jersey number, <laughs> um, number four. So Brett Packers, Brett Favre <laughs> from the Brewers, Favre, <laughs> yes, Paul Molitor for the Brewers, and from the Bucks, Sidney Moncrief. Oh, Sid! Those, <laughs> wow, <laughs> Sir Sid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so those were at various times in my life my favorite players. All Wisconsin teams all wore number four. That's. Breezy. I didn't even think of that. You have to be a big Giannis fan, though. Oh, yeah, I am. Um, and I think the Bucks are pretty incredible right now. But I don't get to see them that often. They're on TV yeah. a little bit more now. But I've gone 
like the decade without <laughs> even seeing the Bucks very much. <laughs> right, you know, right. We don't have an NBA channel at our house. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, I'm excited about the Bucks being good, and they have a shot probably to I win the championship. I think so, this year. man. I, the, Giannis is on a different level. Yeah, and he's still growing. My, God. I mean, not si- well. Maybe yeah, no, he is. Maybe he's better and better yeah. for sure. My current favorite players. Um, uh, <laughs> For the Packers, it's so too easy to say, but Aaron Rodgers. I mean, yeah. how can if you're a Packers fan? Uh, you like guys, Aaron you Rodgers. guys have had like the lockdown on great quarterbacks. <laughs> yeah. It's so ridiculous. For the last two decades, yeah. and also Oren Burks, who played here yep. at Vandy. Oh, he's he did. A I linebacker with the Packers now. Um, did you then, work with him? Yeah, he's that's amazing. awesome. Yeah, so that's where I say like to be able to have a rooting yep. interest in someone that you actually know and you see him yep. out there on the field, and then Kari Blassingame, who's a fullback with the Titans now. And uh, both of those guys are, are guys that you would love to talk to. Yep. You know, they were complete people, yep. not just football players. Uh, for the Brewers, um, probably uh, Yelich. Uh, yeah. My kids have Yelich jerseys right now. and then As they should, because he's, <laughs> uh, I, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, so... I was just reading something to say the best players on your two favorite teams. No, but I, Yelich, I, I, I think he's just a, he's a good guy and he's just phenomenal. Like, I think he was going to win MVP again this year until he got hurt. Yeah. Personally. I think so too. Okay. And here's an interesting thing too. Like I like Ryan Braun and I I think that it's maybe uh, a little willing blindness on my part. Like he gets booed everywhere he goes for the whole steroids thing. And so if I was honest with myself, maybe I would say (laughs) I shouldn't really like that guy, but He's a That's damn good ball player, how, like, too, you though. stick up for people that are on your own team, you know? Urban Meyer was the worst <laughs> coach ever until he came to Ohio State, and he's the greatest thing that ever existed. Got it. Yep, 100%. All right. Well, um, I guess we have, I have one more. This All is right. a stupid question. Because you travel, yeah. what, what, what's, like, your favorite restaurants, foods? Like, what, like... Yeah, I love um, Thai food and Indian okay. food. When my wife and I get stuff... After the kids go to bed, she usually send me out on Friday or night or whatever, and I'll <laughs> say, you went tire Indian. You right. know, that's yeah. what I'll go get. Living here in Nashville, I like barbecue also, yeah. having lived in Austin when I was in high school. Yeah. Um, as far as... Uh, Do you guys see bands when you're in town ever? Not that often. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we don't go out that often. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean... You can, yeah. Um, but I just the last performance I saw was a woman named Marshall Chapman, who would oh, be yeah. another great guest for your yeah. show. She's, uh, I think, 70 years old. She's a rock, real rock and roller. Like yeah. she used to hang out in Nashville with Chris Christopherson and Bob oh. Dylan, and uh, she's um, one of the first like real rock and female guitarists. Yeah. She's from Spartanburg, South Carolina. She talks about how seeing Elvis perform in the 1950s as a little girl changed her life. Yeah. And she's also the biggest basketball fan you've ever. That's met. awesome. She sits in the front row at the Vandy basketball <laughs> games when she was married. The former Vanderbilt uh, women's basketball coach Jim Foster. Walked her down the aisle. <laughs> That's awesome. She's endowed basketball scholarships here, and she's an incredible. But see that there's there's the art artist plus athlete scenario. I mean, it, it plays out all the time. That I don't think people recognize it. I mean, I think maybe it's more recognized than it used to be. But it's it's amazing how those things overlap. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, and she's in perfect embodiment of that. And she was preparing for a. New Year's Eve show that she's headlining. And so she did a series of free concerts at a little dive bar called the Springwater right, right across the street from campus. And I got to see her play in this little tiny club. That's which awesome. was a real treat. So yeah. things like that that happen in Nashville is I, yeah. makes you appreciate Nashville's here. Nashville's an amazing city. I haven't been here a ton, but like just, uh, you know, being here 10 times or whatever and being able to do a couple different things. And it's growing. Yeah, it's growing like crazy. And I think someone with your interest, I mean, it was just voted like number one sports city, and it's obviously a great city for the arts and not just country music. I yeah. mean, it is the home of country music because there's yeah. all kinds of music. Yeah. And um, certain neighborhoods in town are really developing reputations as sort of the the, um, the home of the arts. You yeah. know, East Nashville and the Wedgwood Houston area and some other spots in town. Have you uh, just maybe one last? Are you doing any more um, readings? Do you have you done any readings? Oh, I know you've done some, yeah, you've done yeah. some at the beginning. I don't know if I, I try to extend those as much as I yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. Visiting schools is one way to do that. Yeah. Um, my next trips, I'm going to the Tucson uh, Book Festival oh, in cool. March. Speaking at a couple of schools in Baltimore in February. Um, there's two schools in Nashville that are having me come spend two or three days uh, at their school as a sort of a writer in residence um, in the month of January. Um, 
and I'm still booking uh, visits to other no, schools, other parts of the country right now. And I think that that to me is what you're doing in that realm, that you're going to schools. It's not just going to bookstores, but you're like going to the heart of where, I mean, that, that's, that's important. Like that's where the change happens. That's where the understanding happens, you know? So I think what you're doing is real. I mean, I like, I use this word every once in a while, but I think it's kind of heroic in that sense. I mean, I mean, serious because the stories that you tell are important, but the way that you're going about doing stuff, I think is also equally, maybe even more important about how you go out and let people know about what it is. Thank you. And I think that's the reason why I've chosen to try to write, um, at least in part for kids, you know, right. not just adults, because I, to me it feels more meaningful. Yep. Um, first of all, to get a kid maybe who didn't think they were interested in reading, but they yep. see a sports book and they get hooked on it, right? Then also to use sports, which sometimes it's the popular jock kids at the school that are the most into sports, but then if I can get them interested in these social justice issues through the books, then that the role that they play at their school, that can have a ripple yep. effect on a whole culture yep. at a school. So that's uh, equally important to me yep. to try to that's that where effect. That's where the, literally the social components break down. You know, we always say that, that, you know, we're trying to knock down those barriers between artists are supposed to be over here, athletes are supposed to be, no, no, no. It's not like that. Right. And, and really just kind of, everybody's the same, like get them all in the same space together and see happens yeah yeah and i really admire those athletes that are willing to um sort of step out as a little bit different yep. to do those things because they don't have to you yep. know they could live comfortably in that little uh, perch that we give them yep. as an athlete and for them to show that they're interested in art or show they're interested in helping other people or take on a controversial political issue it takes a lot of courage on their part and so i always admire that yep well do you have anything you want to say <laughs> uh, i just want to say Thank you. I oh mean, yeah, no. You're driving to Colorado with your yeah. dog, and you stop in Nashville to, to set this up. That means oh, a lot th- to me. I love this. I like to me like being able to talk to you. Like it's really an honor. I mean, being serious, and you know, I love that we're building a friendship with each other because um, I I just knew that first time we talked. It's like oh, you're you're really in the same world that Chris and I are, and it's it's. For lack of a better way to say, it, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun to like meet people like you and and to sit here and talk. And I think there's more that we can talk about at a later date in another podcast. And and but yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Good luck to you. And yeah. uh, I think this podcast is a terrific idea. And it's a big world, but it's a small world too. And you make these connections, and it gets these smaller and smaller. Yep. And that's the fun part about life. Great. Well, thank you, Andrew Maronis, and uh, we'll talk to you. Right. Bye. Thanks. Again, thanks to Andrew Marinus, and as always for listening to the Abstract Athlete Podcast. Cannot recommend these books enough, so please go out and get both of them. Uh, again, Games of Deception is also available as an audiobook. Uh, huge thank you to Aaron Lee Tajdin for lending the amazing music for today's podcast. Please stop by our website, theabstractathlete.com, and our social media outlets for future events, pop-up exhibits, podcasts and other information see you next week when we talk with veteran and artist alicia beats don't forget to exercise the body and exercise the mind see you next week